Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host. And if you're listening to this, it means by now we have found a new host. Our, our host decided they didn't really want much to do with us anymore. So, oh well, but I'm always striving to make sure I can bring you the best in Christian apologetics. And today, of course, we're being no exception. There's a new book out. It's called Truth in a Culture of Doubt. And it's written by three authors, actually. And one of them is on the show today. Now, the three authors who wrote the book are Andreas Kostenberger, Daryl Bach, and Josh Chatfer. And we've got Daryl Bach here with us. It's his second time on the show today. And that should tell you that apparently I didn't annoy him too much the first time. Now, let's give you a little bit of his biography here. He is the Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas, Texas. He also serves as Executive Director of Cultural Engagement for the Seminary Center for Christian Leadership. His special fields of study involve hermeneutics, use of the Old Testament menu, Luke Acts, historical Jesus, gospel studies, and the integration of theology and culture. He served on the board of Chosen People Ministries for over a decade and serves on a board at Wheaton College. He is a graduate of the University of Texas with a BA, Dallas Theological Seminary with a THM, in the University of Aberdeen with a PhD. He has had four annual stints of postdoctoral study at the University of Tübingen, the second through fourth as an Alexander von Humboldt scholar. He also serves as Elder Emeritus at Trinity Fellowship Church in Richardson, Texas. He's the editor-at-large for Christianity Today, and he's served as president of the Evangelical Theological Society from 2000-2001. He has authored 30 books, including a New York Times bestseller in nonfiction, and the most recent release, where now it's most recently it's now is truth in a culture of doubt. He, the, that's a response largely to Bart Ehrman. He's married to Sally and has two daughters, both of whom are married, a son, two grandsons, and a granddaughter. Well, Dr. Bark, it's great to have you back on the Deeper Waters podcast. It's great, great to be swimming with you in deeper waters. <laughs> Apparently, I didn't annoy you too much the first time, but since that academic introduction has been given, just in case some people might not have heard the first show and might not know much about you, tell us a bit about how you got to be where you are today on a personal level. Well, uh, I uh, came to the Lord in college between my freshman and sophomore year in college uh, and uh, started a home Bible study when I went to the University of Texas at Austin my second year. And that's where I learned about uh, teaching and teaching the Bible. Went to seminary and was asked back to teach after I was done with my doctoral studies. And I've been at Dallas now for 33 years, uh, teaching mostly in the Gospels area and Acts, and particularly Luke Acts. And so uh, historical Jesus, those are kind of my uh, my topics in, in terms of what I've concentrated on. And, uh, and then three years ago, assumed the role of executive director for cultural engagement at the seminary. And uh, and so uh, I've been responsible for producing a weekly podcast on the seminary web- website, www.dts.edu slash the table. We call it the table, and it deals with a huge array of issues related to God mm-hmm. and culture. So that's mm-hmm. kind of the, that's the short uh, bio. <clears throat> now, this book that's just come out is called Truth in a Culture of Doubt, and it's largely a response to Bart Ehrman. 
Now, in case some of my listeners might not know, who is Bart Ehrman? Well, he teaches uh, early Christian studies at North Carolina Chapel Hill. And actually, the book uh, is, is a response to Bart Ehrman, but it's not a response to him so much personally as the views that he represents, because he writes a textbook for uh, on early Christianity that is the best uh, selling, most widely used textbook in early Christian classes and universities around the country. It's published by Oxford University. And then he's written a series of popular books, many of which have made the bestsellers list. I think at least four mm-hmm. have made the bestsellers list, dealing with a variety of issues related to the authenticity and integrity of the Bible and the nature of Christianity. So we decided to write a book that was a response uh, to the general positions that he takes, not so much as a response to him personally, but what the views that he represents. When he writes, he says, I don't represent uh, my own views here only, but I represent a, a, a swath of people who teach this, which is actually true. And so, um, so the book uses Airman as a way into the conversation with really a whole host of people who teach the kinds of things that, uh, that Bard represents in his books. And, and that was the point. We actually did two books. One was called Truth Matters that was released mm-hmm. in the spring. It was written directly to graduating high school students and college students who are headed to university and who are going to meet these challenges. It's written in a style that connects with them. And then this book is kind of more the, the blood and guts book, uh, uh, which has details and many more footnotes and that kind of thing. So you can follow up some of the points that we're making as we're interacting with Bart. Yeah, I think it's important also that we talk about Bart Ehrman's journey. I mean, he didn't he didn't start out as someone who was opposed to Christianity, right? That's correct. He came out through the he went originally to Moody, then on to Wheaton, and from Wheaton he went to Princeton. It was at Princeton he began to doubt the Christian background that he came out of. And then he has uh, evolved. I think his self-description now is that he's an agnostic. And, uh, and so uh, he's, he's moved through uh, to agnosticism out of, uh, out of a Christian belief. And this is part of what makes him uh, interesting to interact with because he knows the positions he's writing against having been in the church and having grown up through evangelical institutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, Craig Evans, for instance, has said that Bert Ehrman has been on a flight from fundamentalism. Would you agree with that? Well, I think he's on a flight from fundamentalism, but I'm not sure he's ever left it once. Mm-hmm. The way in which he reads the materials is very flat and fundamentalistic, even as an agnostic. So if there's such a thing as an agnostic fundamentalist, then maybe that's what Bart Ehrman is. Yeah, I'd uh, be more than willing to attest that I've met several atheists who are fundamentalists, so it wouldn't be surprising to me if I met agnostics who are fundamentalists as well. But let's uh, also consider some of you that said at the beginning of this book. Now, this isn't actually from you. It's from your co-author, Josh Chatra. But he talks about being a woman who couldn't understand professors or experts from the Bible don't believe it. And he says... Later, I was a bit surprised when I had a similar discussion with a couple of well-respected pastors in my community. These conversations helped me see once again that most people, even pastors, don't know much about what's going on in the world of biblical scholarship. The other authors of this book have had similar discussions. 
We often answer that some pursue such study because they love history or ancient history, while others do so to react to their upbringing, much as Ehrman has. Some even do it for both reasons. I gotta say, that passage really concerned me when I read it because, unfortunately, I do meet too many pastors as well who don't have a clue what's going on in the academy, and their churches are just totally unprepared when someone like Bart Ehrman shows up. I think that's exactly the case. That's why we've been doing the writing we've been doing, and we've been writing both the pastors and to youth leaders. The Truth Matters book was aimed at them, was built uh, so that they could use it in either youth groups or small groups to prepare them for university. Our, our sense is, is that most people have no idea what questions are being asked, how those questions are even being approached, and then how to respond to it with something more than simply says, well, this is what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. When the Bible, in fact, is the question, then simply saying the Bible says it and that's the end of it doesn't do you much good. So you've got to be able to interact on a completely different level with the kinds of questions that are being raised and the way that they're being raised. And that's really what we're hoping to accomplish with the book, is to give uh, enough uh, material so that we sort out the types of observations that that Bart and others are making that are true. They're dealing with certain uh, facts of the text that that they're presenting, but then also sorting out how they spin that material in such a way that uh, that they come to a certain conclusion, and that may not be the only way to deal with the facts that are in front of them. Yeah, I think part of the problem, in fact, with our pastors is too often we're raising non-essentialist for levels of essentials. In the case of Bart Ehrman, inerrancy is a big one. And so for Ehrman, when inerrancy fell, that pretty much opened up the floodgates. Well, I think that's true uh, that... That, and this is part of the fundamentalism that I'm talking about. It was kind of a complete all-or-nothing approach to right. things. And uh, that's where I think the problem lies. Well, since you said that's where you think the problem lies, let's start going into the book then and talk about where Ehrman thinks the problem lies right at the start. And this is from a book called God's Problem. What is God's Problem? God's problem is actually our assessment of God's problem. It's not really, well, is it God's problem the way we're thinking about it? And that is, would an all-knowing, all-good, all-positive God uh, uh, create the world that we live in? And so the problem is the problem of suffering, well-known as the problem of evil. And uh, that's where uh, Ehrman starts. And we titled the chapter, that particular chapter, is God immoral because he allows suffering? And that really does introduce the nature of the problem. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, we have to be clear about this is what Ehrman is saying God's problem is. He says, the Bible doesn't answer the biggest question we have, which is why we suffer. To which when I read that first time, because I have read through God's problem, saying, well, that's actually not exactly my biggest question. I thought it was revealing that this was Ehrman's biggest question. Right. Yeah, yeah that, it is for Airman's biggest question, and mm-hmm. I think part of it is is that, it, is that the Scripture doesn't give him an answer to the question that he's happy with. And mm-hmm. basically the answer to the question that the Scripture gives, the book of Job, I think, lays this out pretty clearly, is the way in which the, way in which the world operates and the creation operates is part of my uh, sovereign activity, 
And because I don't reveal to you, you know, the whys and wherefores of every piece of suffering that someone goes through, doesn't mean there isn't a rhyme or a reason to it. <laughs> Could it also be part of Ehrman's still all or nothing thinking, where he's kind of opened up himself up to a situation where there's got to be a chapter and verse answer to every single problem that you have in this life, and you can find it in the Bible. Well, I think that's that's true. That's a good observation. I think I think the whole idea is that we ought to find uh, solutions to all the questions that we have, and that life uh, loses some element of mystery. It also loses some element of res of resolution in the future, because mm -hmm. part of the way God deals with the problem of evil is directly related to uh, to the way He deals with. Uh, and what God will do in the future that levels things out, deals with justice, will help us perhaps understand and appreciate the nature of the suffering and the choices that we have. None of that has any play in anything that Armand writes. Honestly, I've never really seen the problem of evil as too convincing. Some people might say, well, that's because you're not thinking about enough. But honestly, I'm just looking to say, okay, what I have here is I see the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is extremely strong. There are many things I don't understand about evil and why some particular evils occur. Why should I throw out the evidence I see for a resurrection that's particularly strong because of some other matters that I don't understand due to information I can't have in other areas? Yeah, I think that's a good point, Nick. There's one other thing that I think is in play here that we need to mention, and that is even raising the question of good and evil and where the standards for it come from mm -hmm. and how I can even ask the question to begin with mm -hmm. is an important observation. And if there is no God, and if we are here by accident, and if there, and if we are kind of just a random product of whatever's going on, then there you can't even ask the question, mm -hmm. why is there evil in the world? Because everything is a matter of chance, and there is no basis for making any kind of an evaluation at all. Mm -hmm. So the choice about even what is good or evil in order to come into the question almost has to assume that a God exists and who has set standards. But if that's happened, then we're back caught into, well, if he sets the standards, then that's a whole different operation that we have to think our way through. Yeah, I mean, with Ehrman, where he pretty much does and Brooke is, says that with his worldview, he says we just ought to pretty much live the way we should, you know, be kind to our fellow man, help others out on a pathway of life, give report, good things like that. And none of us would really disagree with those, but we want to ask, how do you know those are good things? Well, the problem is, is that you have some people who orient it that way, and I am also grateful to people who orient it that way, if they're agnostic or whatever. But the the more compelling question is, why should someone choose to live that way if that's mm -hmm. the world that we live in? Why not take an attitude of survival of the fittest or the one with the most power wins or a whole variety of other options mm -hmm. that are there to us? There's no morally compelling reason to opt for one thing over the other other than something that we construct for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, why not even take a view of, say, eat, drink, and be merry for... Tomorrow we die. I mean, if there was no God here, no Bible, I mean, heck, we might as well just stop this show right now because all we're talking about is pretty much just trivia at this point. And hey, there are so many other things we could be doing right now. 
That's exactly right. The show would go from being called Deeper Waters to Shallow Waters. <laughs> now, let's look at some of the biblical answers, in fact, about giving. And part of the problem with Ehrman's view is that he, he seems to assume that one answer must apply in every single case. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, uh, and, he, and not only does there need to be a comprehensive answer, but, uh, but there also need to be answers that, that in his judgment are satisfying. Mm -hmm. Now, the first answer he gives is, suffering comes from God as a punishment against sin. And he calls this a classical view, which this one very surprises me because the book of Job is supposed to be the oldest book in the Bible, according to many biblical scholars. And in this very book, God himself shows up and argues against this viewpoint. And it's still the most popular viewpoint we hold today. Mm -hmm. Well, I do, I do think that uh, to the extent that you say that suffering is a result of the fall, or at mm -hmm. least some aspects of the result of the fall, that that's what funds the world into chaos, etc. And that's why we operate dysfunctionally, etc. There is an element of truth to this, right. provided we understand that the issue is the consequences of exercising the choice that God has given us as moral agents, either to walk with him or resist going the way that he sets before us. And mm -hmm. in that resistance, we also set ourselves up for all kinds of mistreatment and failure in our relationships and the way we interact with one another. Now, this illustrates part of the problem you're raising, Nick, because this deals with some aspects of why we suffer, mm -hmm. but there's no way it can deal with, with all the aspects of why we suffer, although a fallen creation does cover a lot. Uh, uh, but uh, sometimes when we see uh, natural disasters and those kinds of things that help us focus on our mortality, we might say, well, we're outside the loop here. But um, when we're talking about a dysfunctional creation, we're focusing primarily on our relationships with each other and what we do to damage one another, but maybe not exclusively with those things. I'm sure you've gotten this kind of question several times, but many times when a natural disaster, like, say, Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane Sandy hits, some people come to me and say, well, do you think God is judging us for our sins? And every single time I say, that's not for us to know. We can't know this. But I can know that we all need to be living in repentance anyway. That's right. And, the, and my, my answer is very similar to you, and it's who knows. Mm -hmm. I mean, that uh, I do think the general suffering in the world and things that emphasize our mortality point us to an accountability that we are not immoral beings, that we are not gods, and that, and that there is a creator out there, and that we are accountable to that creator. So in the most generic sense, I think it's a reminder of those kinds of things. But the idea that this is a specific form of punishment designed to specifically do that, that's what I don't think we can know. You know, there are sometimes we do know this from Scripture. I mean, we know, for instance, that for the destruction of a temple in 586 B.C. by Babylon was punishment for the sins, but my own principle here is, if scripture doesn't say it's punishment, we have no business for saying it's punishment. Well, again, I think we just have to distinguish here between a more generic understanding of the way right. creation works and reminds us of, of 
of our need for God and the more specific kind of one-to-one thing that we want to do. Mm-hmm. It's clear there are some things that do that. There are tons of passages in the prophets that say this about particular experiences that happen between nations, that kind of thing. Uh, but, uh, but they can't all automatically be put in that, in that specific kind of category. Since he mentioned nations, that gets us into the next one that Ehrman has, where it says some suffering is the result of men acting on other men. Simple answer, true. Mm-hmm. And this is something we've been talking about, that uh, we might not have much control of what happens with natural disasters, but the sad reality is we all have control over what we're doing with ourselves and what we're doing to one another. That's true, and you can just look at the situations we find ourselves in right now, literally around the globe, and you can see uh, people treating other people very poorly. Yeah, and the next one I gets into is actually, um, my wife and I were at a conference last night where both of us were speaking on apologetics. It was her first conference. I'm very proud of her. She did very well. And she spoke on the problem of evil from a layman's non-philosophical point of view, where she pretty much told her story about what happened. And clearly then there was something about meeting some nerdy guy and marrying him that she loves as a part just a nerd anyway. I'm not sure what that was about. <laughs> but Well, I guess that makes marriage evil, or at least some marriages. That's a really frightening concept. Well, it it proves that some suffering is indeed voluntary. (laughs) No, she she did say, but I love that apologist and nerd anyway. So that was a highlight to me of the evening. But her whole story was this suffering that I went through in my life. I was so hideous of a time. It was extremely redemptive. And this is one option in the Bible. Suffering is redemptive. It's used to bring about a good that wouldn't have been there. It can be. I mean, the whole idea that that we suffer in some cases for persecution or other reasons that help us to grow mm-hmm. in our in our trust and our reliance on God, that certainly is a category. You know, many of the things that Ehrman points out and points to mm-hmm. uh, are, are things that are in the equation. It's just yeah. the way he puts them together oftentimes is the problem. When I was in high school, actually, I started having panic attacks and depression. And when I went to Bible college during this time, just kind of still, first off, I, I figured I wanted to do ministry. And second, I wanted to find my own answers to questions. And that's where I found out about apologetics. And that's when my attitude very started changing. Depression went away, but panic attacks went away. And so what I tell people is, look, when I went through this time in my life, it was a nightmare. It was hell. It was one of the worst things I could have ever gone through. But I look back and if I hadn't have gone through that, I wouldn't have gotten to be apologetics that I'm at today, which wouldn't, have, which would have meant I wouldn't have done so many other things. I wouldn't be doing this show. Wouldn't be doing so much that I love, and definitely, I probably would have quite likely never married Allie at all. So, see, yeah, it was hideous of a time, but gosh, I'm so thankful I went through it. Exactly. <laughs> Now, the next one you got is, suffering is a test for faith. Uh, I can't help but think of a story about a, about a pastor who was giving a sermon, and a couple guys came in with automatic rifles and such and said, anybody willing to take a bullet for Jesus, stay where you are. And 
After most of the congregation flees, even about 20 people, one of the guys says, Okay, Pastor, get rid of all your hypocrites. Continue your sermon. That's cold. But sometimes suffering does show us who's willing to be faithful, who's willing to stand for Jesus. And this is something we can especially think about in light of what's going on with ISIS, because, you know, when I ask this kind of question, someone says, would you be willing to die for Jesus? I always say, I would hope so. Because I remember there was a man several years ago who said, I'm willing to die for you, and then denied him three times. Yep, good old Peter. Mm-hmm. He did eventually die for the Lord, by the way. He did eventually fulfill that commitment. It's just that it took a while. Mm-hmm. And when we see this as a test, we so often get that, that redemptive aspect that was talked about before. You know, I think we really need to keep Romans 8 in mind a lot of times, that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. Because when we're going for suffering, we can look at it and say, there is no way any good can come out of this. And when we do that, we're really making a statement about God and his omnipotence and omniscience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is suffering at times is mysterious. God doesn't give us the exact reason we suffer, but expects us to trust him. And personally, I think this happens 99.9% of the time. We are not told specifically why we are suffering. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, I do think that all these reasons, at one point or another, at one particular point or another, any one of them may be in play. Even a combination of them mm-hmm. may be in play. You know, it just seems the problem with Ehrman is that he seems to take the approach that it has to be just one big answer. Instead of saying, this could be like a patchwork of answers. It could be several things working together we don't understand. That's right. And part of me, when I was reading through the book, I was wondering, I wonder if Ehrman has ever considered N.T. Wright's book, Evil and the Justice of God. That's right. It's fair. You know, when we spoke last night together, I spoke on evil and I spoke on the resurrection afterwards and said in it, people, are, this is really God's ultimate answer to the problem of evil. It's for resurrection. It is, uh, the resurrection is part of the answer mm-hmm. because it opens up the whole idea of our accountability to God, the relationships that we have to God, uh, our need to be connected to him, the message that comes with uh, with Jesus's life and ministry, uh, the vindication of God of him. All this is wrapped up uh, ultimately in the program of God that Jesus represents, part of which deals with the presence of this evil. Mm-hmm. Now, let's move on to the next section, which is a major one here that Ehrman really goes on. Is the Bible full of irresolvable contradictions? And many of us know that if you watch a debate such as the ones he has with Michael Kona, for instance, he'll use these kinds of lines, and they're very convincing if you don't know how to deal with them very well. You've never heard them before. It's like, how many angels were at the tomb? Was it two? Was it one? Depends on which gospel you read. Which women went to the tomb? Depends on which gospel you read. Did a centurion come or did a servant come? Depends on which gospel you read. 
Now, that sounds very convincing if you're unfamiliar with how the Gospels are written, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And it, it, it assumes that each account is an exhaustive account, mm -hmm. which itself is a premise. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a bad premise. We have enough differences between the Gospels and the parallels to see and to be able to spot that writers are selective about what they tell us. Mm -hmm. And so there's no guarantee that one account tells us everything that's going on. I like to make the distinction between text being accurate versus text being precise. Mm -hmm. Those are not the same thing. A text can be accurate without being precise. Mm -hmm. You say that there's one angel at the tomb, one angel who delivered the message at the tomb was emptied or whatever, but two were present, and you, and you split those out between accounts. Both can be accurate without, with one of them being more precise than the other. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you, I, I like to use the illustration. If you ask my wife or and me about our courtship, you'll get some overlap and some differences. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean we're in contradiction with each other. It simply means that she has remembered and passed on and chosen to pass on details that I haven't presented to you. Mm -hmm. I often like to use the illustration of this. I say, imagine some Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons came to our door. And I came and I answered them, I spoke to them. Well, as soon as they're gone, I'm going to be calling some people. One of the first people I might call is my parents and say, Hey, uh, I just had these Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons come to my door, and I think you might want to hear how the dialogue went. And I'll tell them bits and pieces. Of course, I can't remember everything that happened, but I'll give them the gist of what went on. And they say, Oh, son, you did good. We're proud of you, things like that. Now, one of the next people I might call is my in-laws, and my in-laws are very much into the apologetics field. They're going to get a different story because they're going to get the more detailed arguments that I gave because they know the language that I'm speaking in. Nothing against my folks there, they just don't know the language that well, my in-laws do. Those two accounts aren't contradictory, they're just different in their emphases. That's right. They're complementary to each other. They come alongside each other. And and one writer in one situation has made certain choices that another writer hasn't made. Mm -hmm. And then also we have to realize that ancient writers had different standards for writing than we do. When one gospel says the centurion came to Jesus and the other one says his servants did, what we need to realize is that in the ancient world, if your servants came, it was as if you yourself came. And one of my favorite examples of this is in John's Gospel, where it says, Pilate flogged Jesus. Well, are we supposed to think then that Pilate himself went out and got the whip and started beating Jesus? No, of course not. Exactly. The principle of the Shaliach, Jesus even says to his disciples, the one who hears you, here's the one who sent you. Mm -hmm. And the one who hears me, here's the one who sent me. So uh, it, it's it's just a way of, of viewing representation that we're talking about here. It's like when the press secretary speaks at the White House. We don't care about what's said because the press secretary is speaking. We care about it because the press secretary cares, uh, uh, represents the president. And we care because it's the president's spokesperson speaking. Yeah. In fact, we could even look and say that when the press secretary speaks, we might have a news report that says, the president said such and such. In fact, that often happens. And of course, the sign that's hanging over the press secretary's head says White House. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and so the representation comes that he is speaking for the resident, the chief resident of the White House. Mm-hmm. Now, let's also consider taking Ehrman's kind of worst case scenario for us. Let's suppose that we're doing our research, and lo and behold, we do find what appears to be a bona fide contradiction in the account. We don't really have any way whatsoever of resolving it. Have we lost Christianity then? I think the answer is two, uh, is no, and there are two ways to think about it. Mm-hmm. One is we may not be able to resolve it because we don't have enough information to resolve it. We have to remember that all ancient history work that we do is dealing with partial evidence. If we dig up something, we may actually find that we get the answer to the question. And the mm-hmm. second answer is, is that it is certainly conceivable that even though there are disagreements about certain details about what's going on in the text, the thrust of what's said about Jesus and who he is is something uh, that we still should take seriously despite that. Now, there are many people in the church who take a view that the scripture, because it's inspired, is inerrant. This is where I am. Mm-hmm. But uh, that doesn't necessarily mean if that were to turn out to be wrong, that I necessarily have to mail in my membership to the church. Um, it's completely conceivable that the, that the scripture could have uh, certain places where there are problems in it, and I could still say the core message of the Christian faith still stands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm one who holds to inerrancy as well, but it's not something I'm going to hang my hat on and say if inerrancy goes Christianity goes, and unfortunately, I've met too many Christians who actually do have that attitude. I mean, I've seen some who said, if there was one contradiction in the Bible, then Christianity is false and Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And frankly, that terrifies me. Yeah, well, I don't think we can deal with most areas of life that way. I mm-hmm. mean, there are lots of textbooks or other things that I read where I go, I recognize there are problems here and there with what's being said. But the general direction this is going is something very much I embrace. In fact, we could use as an example, you've written this book with two co-authors, and I'm sure you trust them since you wrote a book with them, but you're not going to sign any statement. I'm sure that's going to say, my co-authors are inerrant in everything that they say. No, you're right. I won't. Mm-hmm. They're good guys, but they're not that good. Yeah. Now... In fact, this is something that uh, Frank Zinver, he's from American Atheist, even used in some of his arguments since he's a strong Christ myth. In fact, he's even so much down that line that he's not even certain that Paul existed. But he said he goes through his work on the Gospels and says, well, we found an error in Luke there, so so much for Luke being a reliable source. Yeah, I mean, it's it. If we dealt with the rest of reality that way, Mm -hmm. we would not be talking to anybody. Yeah. In fact, if we dealt with much of ancient history, this way, or any of the rest of ancient history, we'd know pretty much nothing about ancient history, right? That's that's correct. I mean, if if one error disqualifies a source from Mm -hmm. giving us other information, it's just a huge logical fallacy Mm -hmm. to suggest that one error uh, or one problem in, in our interactions with anybody, disqualifies everything they say to us. Any jury in a court of law would sit there and look at a witness 
and would and and the question they're asking is are they generally credible they don't they might find one or two pieces pieces of detail they don't actually accept as being likely in light of what the other witnesses tell them but they still might accept the general trustworthiness of the witness on the key things that he presents despite that we all do that discerning all the time now you yourself when you're doing your research on the historical jesus and how exactly do you go about doing this because someone could say well you come with the idea that the scriptures are inerrant and that covers everything but when you're doing your research you pretty much try and treat it as much as you can like a non-biased historian right that's well that's true i can't say i'm not biased but right. i can say i try and treat it as a story and what i tell people is when i'm when i lay out the case for what i'm doing historically look at the reasons and the rationale that i'm using and what i'm presenting to you that's mm -hmm. what needs to be evaluated yeah it may be that i've come to the view that i can trust the text because i've worked with the text enough to believe i can trust it right and so uh so you know it's kind of a chicken and egg question mm -hmm. but the rationale that i give i have to be able i have to be able to present to anyone and in many in most cases where we get into these discussions and arguments the rationale that i'm giving is directly related to evidence and the way sources work and that and those kinds of things mm. things that that all people discuss whether they have a faith or not yeah when it comes to presenting a paper at say sbr or something some place where it's peer-reviewed it doesn't matter if you're a christian or an atheist or conservative or liberal when you get up there, you have to go and present the viewpoint as it is. You can't get up and say, well, I'm a Christian, and therefore the Bible is inerrant, so this is true about Jesus. And at the same time, you couldn't get up and say, well, I'm an atheist, therefore miracles can't happen, so here's what really happened in this text. Well, you might get away with second, saying the latter, but you certainly couldn't say <laughs> the former. Now, you all talk a little bit in this chapter about how Jesus Became God, which is Ehrman's latest book. And I was very pleased to find that you all brought out something that I've noticed in the book as well, and I notice it constantly in Ehrman's books, and in fact, in many non-Christian books. But we'll stick with talking about Ehrman today, and that's that Ehrman is very good at doing what I call giving the sound of one hand clapping. You mean giving one side of the evidence? Is that what you're talking about? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, because I'm sitting here, how does one hand clap? I guess you click your fingers or something. But uh, anyway, no, that's exactly the point. Is I like to talk about. In fact, the way I describe these books is the these two books, Truth Matters and Truth in a Culture of Doubt, is is what we're really doing is we're giving you the rest of the story. Mm -hmm. That what Airman is doing is giving you one side of the story. He's giving you one case. In most cases, his resources, if you look at his footnotes, he doesn't discuss a whole wave of scholarship that exists out there. It's like he pretends it doesn't even exist. And he gives you his case. Now, I don't have a problem with someone giving the case that they believe in. That, right. that's, that's part of the territory. But the mm -hmm. problem with, with Ehrman is, is that he leaves you the impression, this is the only view that's out there. This is what scholars hold, you know, and you both scholars and then you hear the music playing in the background of the hallelujah course because you're supposed to believe in that kind of thing and uh and the and the problem that i see is is that he only gives you a part of the evidence a part of what 
some scholars say, maybe even many scholars who teach in the university. That's mm -hmm. fine as far as I'm concerned. But the other half of the story is there is another part of the story that's out there. And that other part of the story actually does raise some questions about what it is that Ehrman's telling you and what it is that you should believe about what it is that Ehrman's telling you. I think it's very revealing that he speaks so many times about his close friends in the field. And I could look and say, same time, where is he? Daryl Bach and Mike Lacona and Craig Blomberg and others are my, some of my closest friends in the field. And they all think the Bible is inerrant and inspired that Jesus rose from the dead. So this is obviously the opinion of scholarship. Well, the, the fact is, is that scholarship, if anyone knows anything about it, is full of debates. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so scholarship is rarely a singular voice. Uh, it usually is. Uh, it usually is a discussion about the reason for certain things. Now he represents a, a in many of his positions a kind of consensus that exists in one wing of scholarship, but that doesn't exhaust the discussion, nor does it exhaust the kinds of of evidence that that the other side brings. And so our book is really designed to to put you in a conversation as mm -hmm. opposed to leave you at a table where you're only hearing one voice. Yeah, to give some examples, and I'm going to be using his latest book, Mania, as an example of this. For instance, when you get to a little section there where he talks about miracles and he argues against miracles, I noticed there was zero interaction with Craig Keener. Now, Craig Keener could be right, he could be wrong, but he's written this massive work on miracles and if you read Ehrman's book, you have no idea this work exists. Yeah, and in fact, there's there's something very profound about about this omission because mm -hmm. part of the massiveness of Keener's work is to make the point that people in most parts of the world do believe in a transcendent, and they do believe in the possibility of miracles. Mm -hmm. And so, part of what he's trying to show is that Ehrman's claim about where scholarship is, or where materialists are or where rationalists are, take your pick, uh, actually is reflective of a very narrow stream of humanity and may reflect an enlightenment bias uh, that isn't reflective of where most people are. And when you rule out by, by fiat, in effect, or by definition, what's likely or most probable on the basis of a worldview that a select group has decided upon, um, all that reflects not a balanced presentation of the discussion, but a very biased presentation of the discussion. Mm -hmm. So the omission of, of Keener in this particular conversation is a very, very important omission. Now, someone could say, well, miracles aren't really the point of that book. The point of that book, though, is how the idea of the deity of Christ sort of evolved in the early church. But it's important with this fact that he mentions Larry Hurtado twice never really arguing with Hurtado's arguments, which are detrimental strongly to his case, if they're correct. And there is absolutely no mention of Richard Balkum, who would be quite likely Ehrman's biggest critic on this. Both points correct. The real problem here is, is that there's no way to get from a non-Messianic Jesus in his ministry, or even a Messianic Jesus in his ministry, to deity, unless there was some impulse coming out of that ministry to take you there mm -hmm. because it just introduces so many problems that you don't have to face 
uh, if, you, if you just choose to go there. In other words, the church must have this, the church uh, engaged in facing these problems and, uh, and agreed to face these problems because there was some inherent momentum in going there, not because they chose to go there and then inherit these problems. And, and so I think there has to be certain claims and moves that Jesus makes within his ministry that indicates who he is, not just the titles that he claims to operate with, because some of these titles are ambiguous. Son of God is a very ambiguous title in, in Second Temple Judaism because it can simply mean kingship. Now, the reason, the reason I think these are important uh, concerns is because Jesus did certain things that indicated and pointed how he viewed himself. He forgave sins. He uh, handled the creation. He um, claimed that God would vindicate him and seat him with him in heaven, which was a very revolutionary idea for a mm -hmm. second temple Jew to whom God, only God receives the honor. Right. So, so there are lots of things going on here that deal with the core, uh, core events of Jesus' life and acts that point to who he is. And for the church to take a non-deified Jesus and use, and the argument is that, that this comes through a Greco-Roman influence, when in fact this this movement in its core initially was very very Jewish, mm -hmm. uh, and and the high Christology everyone recognizes came in a period long before Christianity was interacting directly and accepting a lot of Gentiles. Um, so that momentum has to have previously existed before we get to the large Hellenistic influence and before before we get to the early church ministry. Because otherwise, the church is deciding to take on a whole series of challenges it didn't have to take on if it was merely going to represent the ideas of a non-Messianic or an only Messianic Jesus. In fact, we can see this in one of the earliest writers for the church, and that would be the Apostle Paul in another passage that Ehrman doesn't really interact with, 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6, through 6, where he takes the... Jewish Shema, found in Deuteronomy 6, 4-5, a great statement of monotheism, and includes Jesus in it. Yes, and the other passage I like to, to use is the passage in the Philippians hymn, mm -hmm. where he applies the language of Isaiah 45, which is one of the most outstanding defenses of monotheism in the face of, uh, of polytheism of the nation. Mm -hmm. and, and, and uses that language, which in Isaiah has been used, of the God of Israel, and applies it directly to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And since we mentioned Barkham and Hurtado, it's important to mention that people like them and Hingar and others are part of what uh, how God became Jesus caused the early High Christology Club, which they say unfortunately doesn't come with, with mugs at this point, I think. <laughs> and... They say, these scholars said, this wasn't a gradual development at all. This was right out of the gates from the resurrection. There you have it. Jesus is part of what it's called the divine identity. He's got ontological equality with God. It's, it's not a development over time. It happens immediately. Yeah, and I think that the, here is where um, there's a huge mistake made in the way this discussion is framed almost by everybody. And that is, we tend to deal with the argument by saying, well, there's this gap between the event and the writing down of these works in the New Testament, anywhere from, uh, well, depending on which books you're talking about, anywhere as small as 15 years 
as large as 60 years, depending on which books you're talking about, and assuming that you see James written in the mid-40s. Uh, if you deal with Paul's writings, and when he's beginning to write, beginning of the 50s, it could be a 20-year starting point. Mm -hmm. But there's this huge gap, and there's stuff going on in between. So the question is, how do you fill in the gap? But I think that's the wrong way to think about this. Even mm -hmm. though our texts are later, they're describing experiences that are earlier. And the, some of the more authentic experiences that aren't very much debated is Paul's own conversion. Paul's own conversion happens in the 30s. In fact, it happens within probably a couple of years of, um, of the crucifixion. More importantly, Paul is persecuting uh, the church up to the point of his conversion, which means he's aware of the debates that he's having with the people who are preaching Jesus before he gets converted. Well, now we're in a position where we're literally on top of the events themselves. And in the midst of that, when Paul has his vision on the Damascus Road and receives by revelation uh, what it is that he's supposed to be doing, Paul has to have enough, heard enough in the preaching to uh, process that experience and become a Christian. Mm -hmm. and, and he doesn't say, oh, by the way, I became a Christian and then I went and I thought through my theology and I added to it as I went along. No. The very fact that he perceived that Jesus had been raised and vindicated by God in the very terms that the church was preaching uh, shows um, where he is. So this shows where he is, that is Paul, and this shrinks the gap. We're on the events that are literally on top of themselves. We aren't in the gap of the 15 years between the event and the epistles. We aren't in the gap of the 30 to 60 years between the event and the gospels. We're literally on events that are on top of themselves. We could hardly have a better connection to ancient evidence and uh and ancient historical sources, and in the midst of that, then, when you put that all together, that's why you sign on to the High Christology Club. Well, for anyone who's wanting more information on something like this, I do have a podcast interview I did earlier this year with Michael Bird, Chris Tilding, and Charles Hill on their book, How Jesus Became God. I'm going to advise you to submit, but we need to get further on this book. And in the next chapter, you start talking about how Bart Ehrman is responsible for a miracle. Yeah, let me let me uh, add one other thing to the historical argument because mm -hmm. uh, Michael Bird, I was in Australia this summer and I interacted with him about the book, his book, when I was out there, and I told him the one thing that I was disappointed about in that book was there was not any direct engagement with specific passages defending the historicity of Jesus's high Christological claims within his ministry as a way of of substantiating the claims that those that goes back into his ministry mm. that gap can be filled i think in the key events book that i edited with robert webb okay. by looking at some of the events that are tied to uh like jesus's ministry where there are high christological claims and those claims are defended as authentic by historical uh jesus rules so i would i would add that uh to the mix Okay. Now I've got to uh, recall your uh, your your question, and I will let you re-ask it so I can remember okay. what it is that you're talking about. Well, that book you were talking about, it's called Key Events in the Life of a Historical Jesus. That's right. And well, what I was asking about was, you said, well, it's not that Roman's directly responsible, but 
There was a miracle that happened because of the work of Bart Ehrman, and that's where the third chapter starts. Remember what I'm uh -huh. talking about? Well, the miracle that we're talking about is that a book on text criticism could actually make the New York Times bestseller list, that, it, that this topic could create that much interest. Uh, it's an interesting book because what Ehrman is arguing is, is that we've got so many variants in the New Testament uh, that we can't be sure about what the text is. And what's interesting is that the reality is actually almost the exact reverse. Mm -hmm. So the second miracle is, is that a text critic could write a, a book like this, have it make the New York Times bestseller list, and then miss so badly on what it is that textual criticism actually shows us. Mm -hmm. We have uh, the most widely attested ancient work in terms of manuscript evidence of any ancient work, and it's not even close. It's by miles. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, this is, a, this is the place where Ehrman's fundamentalistic readings of things really shows up. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we have over 5,800 Greek manuscripts. We have over 8,000 Latin manuscripts. That's 13,000 manuscripts. Most of the next best attested ancient works operate in the, in the 200 manuscript ranks. So that's kind of a huge difference. Part of the reason we have so many variants is because we have so many manuscripts. Mm -hmm. When you have 13,000 manuscripts, if those manuscripts have just, say, 50 to 100 uh, uh, variants each, you're going to ta be talking about 100,000 uh, variants just by the nature of the math. So that's part of what's going on here, is we've got a situation in which we've, we've got Variants, and then most of those variants don't matter. They involve variations of spelling, they involve variations of word order, things that don't impact the meaning at all. And the ones that do, we have notes on in the margins of Bibles to tell you that they're there, and so you know what your choices are. And then on top of that, when you add that all up, there's not any one of those variants that impacts the total doctrine of a text. The most that they uh, deal with is whether this passage goes into that into that particular teaching or not. That's the kind of thing that gets impacted by the differences. Now, the book that we're talking about is Ehrman's Misquoting Jesus. And textual criticism, it's simply looking at ancient text, or heck, even some modern text, and trying to figure out what the original source behind them said. And... If that does seem to most people sure like something that'd be incredibly boring, just getting a bunch of manuscripts together and reading them over and over. In fact, Dan Ross has even said one of the things about his job is that sometimes it can get so tedious just looking at manuscripts that are so very, very similar. Well, that's right. There's a lot of work that goes into this, and I tell people, you know, it's hard for us to appreciate. This isn't at all related to any point that you're making, but I think it's worth reflecting on. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, and that is the very fact that we have a Bible in our hands and that we're able to read it uh, really is a reflection of the dedication of literally hundreds of people across many, many centuries that have, that have allowed us, and thousands of people for that matter, that have, that have faithfully copied and transmitted these texts in manuscripts generation after generation. You know, the reason manuscripts are later in in, uh, in their dating versus earlier is manuscripts deteriorate and they have to be replaced. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, this faithful copy 
long before there was a printing press and you could print it down and it would be more permanent, is why we are able to have a Bible today. And the fact that we have so many manuscripts out there reflects the faithfulness of many, many people in this regard. In fact, when we're talking about how textual criticism is done, we're going to get to the manuscript soon. One aspect I'm thinking is recently my wife wrote a kind of short story, and so I she emailed it to me, remember, and I sent it to my Kinder from there. And so I'm reading the story. Every now and then I notice a typo, maybe a word typed twice, something of that sort. And I'm able to mentally look at that and say, I know what she really meant to say here. In essence, I'm doing textual criticism right there. That's exactly correct. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say well over 99% of the variants that we meet, we immediately know what actually was going on. Mm -hmm. There are a handful of cases where we're not exactly sure whether we're reading this particular reading or that particular reading. Uh, and most of those cases are noted in good Bibles, in margins with alternative readings, so you know what your choices are. And then, as I said, on top of that, once you put all those together and put them into the list, the issue is not whether we lose any particular teaching of the New Testament or Old Testament, for that matter, or we lose any doctrine, but really how many passages line up under a given theme. Yeah, but you, when you were talking about the manuscripts, and isn't a problem where Ehrman says that all we have are copies of copies of copies of copies? And who knows what went on when all those copies beforehand were lost? Who knows how greatly different what we have now is from the, the original? I mean, isn't this a huge problem? No, it isn't a huge problem at all. The very fact that we have the mass of manuscripts that we do distributed across various locales of various centuries tells us, I think, what the core base of the manuscript tradition is. Mm -hmm. And unless we're going to pause it, and we have no reason to do this, massive additions very, very early on, then the, the gist of what we have is what we have. And yeah, we're not talking some... Doctrine, like say, the Mormons might have that. The early church went into apostasy, and all the texts just got radically, radically changed. Now, all the evidence is is that we, you know, we, you know, if you break this down into fine points, we we sometimes talk about three or four families of texts that show certain characteristics, and we know basically uh, where the thrust of the teaching is as a result of those various families. None of that alters the core teaching of Christianity. I think he used an illustration in the from Mark Roberts. He talks about, imagine taking a writing of, say, 10,000 words. It might have been 50,000. number doesn't really matter. And then giving that to 10 people and having them copy that and then have them give that copy to others and have them copy it. You're going to see a lot of variants. They make just one mistake, say, every thousand words. In that case, you could, before too long, have more mistakes than there are words in the document. But if you take all those manuscripts, as tedious as it might seem, you would probably get a pretty good idea of what the original said. Exactly correct. I mean, the, the, no, no one is operating on a premise uh, that, that the New Testament texts that we have are... Uh, extremely flawed, and if we did accept that premise for the New Testament, then we'd have to throw out most of ancient history elsewhere because we don't have near the manuscript evidence for those sources that bore the dates of manuscripts close to the time of the writing that we do for the New Testament. 
Well, right now, I'd like to remind everyone that this is the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am your host, Nick Peters. And my guest right now is Daryl Bach. We're talking about a book he co-authored, Truth in the Culture of Doubt. Now, if you're listening next week, we got a real treat here. My guest is going to be James Sire, one of the premier apologists in this country, part of what's called, I think, the first wave of apologetics. We're going to be talking about three different books that he's written. And most of us in the apologetics community do owe a debt to James Sire. So I hope you'll all be here next week to hear James Sire talking about these books that he's written. But now we're going to get back to our interview with Daryl Bach here. Now, Ehrman will say, if God wanted us to have his inerrant word, wouldn't he have done a better job preserving the copies and making sure they avoid error? I think they did. I think he did a pretty good job. I mean, I think that, like I said, this is where his fundamentalism really comes across. Because what you're basically saying is, in these variations that we get in a handful of cases, we don't have a very good preservation process. But think about it. We've got a text that dates back 2,000 years, 99.9% of which we are completely certain about, 0.1% about which we discuss, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. I like to point out to people when I discuss this, and Ehrman comes up and say, I'd like to point you out to the work of a leading scholar of textual criticism, and I point out one spot where this scholar says that, you know, in our field, it's pretty hard to admit that a work is done that we've managed to reconstruct something, but lo and behold, there it is, and all we're pretty much doing is tinkering at this point. And then the second point, he says, despite all the variants that we have, New Testament textual critics are sure that we can reconstruct the entire New Testament with reasonable, though not 100% accuracy. And then I'd like to point out, oh, by the way, both of these statements, the scholar of textual criticism who made these statements is uh, Bart Ehrman, uh, exactly. I mean, what more can you say? I think he's, it, this is, again, why I said he's reading it like a fundamentalist. Now, the part of the problem here is, <laughs> is that inerrancy de- demands 100% accuracy in one sense. Mm-hmm. So that's what, he, that's what he's playing against. Right. But I think the point to be made here is, is that in the midst of understanding inerrancy and what we're talking about in the pursuit of what's being originally written, we are aware of what our options are. I like to say that our problem is we have 105% of the text and we're trying to decide what 5% we have that we shouldn't have, mm-hmm. as opposed to saying we don't have all of the text. Mm-hmm. I think it's very, very likely we have everything that was written plus the, ver- plus the variants that have been introduced. And we're trying to call that down to the right 100%. You know, we talked at the start of a show about the rift that seems to exist between the church and the academy. I'd like to use a recent situation to see what your thoughts are on this, but I was in a discussion on Facebook, and the passage that was brought up to make a point in Mark 16, 17, something about casting out demons and such, and I said, we should be very skeptical at this point, however, because most of the oldest and best manuscripts don't include Mark 16, 9 through 20. And one of my friends, good apologist in his own right, did express a concern and said, you know, if we say this, though, a lot of people might start to have some doubts about the Bible along those lines when you're calling the very text into question like this. And so I followed it up by giving some good resources on textual criticism, explaining a little bit about how it works. But how do you think churches 
should handle situations like this. Like if a pastor comes and gets a question from his his pastor saying, "Hey, uh, why isn't it that uh, why is it that these passages are marked off in my Bible, such as Mark's the long ending of Mark or the story of a woman caught in adultery? What do you think we should do?" I think you should tell them why the marks are there uh, by making the observation. This doesn't happen with other texts, does it? person should say, no, it doesn't. So why do you think the marks are there? I don't know. That's why I'm asking you. Well, then you explain. The marks are there because there are many good manuscripts that don't have this text, evidence that this text is actually part of the biblical text. So the translators have done you the good service of letting you know that this text is textually questionable either that it was in the book at all, or that it was in this location mm -hmm. in the book. We've got another one, the example of John 8 that I like to use. Right. I think it's a little different than the longer ending of Mark. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the longer ending of Mark is not authentic to Mark. That Mark ended at 16.8, or the other possibility is we lost the original ending. Mm -hmm. Either of those is possible. Uh, I actually like having the shorter ending where it is, but the other explanation is possible. Anyway, in John 8, we have a text that is located in a variety of positions in the manuscripts, and this happens to be the canonical placement that it has. It also happens to interrupt the flow of thought in John 7 for the rest of John 8. So many people think this is not an improper location in John, but it is an authentic tradition and event in the life of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so you can so that one's different than the ending of Mark. Mark's ending, longer ending, looks like it's just a compilation of the other endings of the other Gospels. I think Dan Wallace has described the story of a woman called in adultery as his favorite story about Jesus that doesn't belong in the Bible. Yeah, and my take is, I think it belongs in the Bible. I just don't think it was originally in the position that John has it in. And yeah. so, so I mean, those are, that that's two variations on the same phenomenon that we have in the text. Yeah. And... The point here is, is that you just need to be aware of what your options are. And when you're aware of what your options options are and what the possibilities are, not only do you know what to say about it, but you know how much strength to put what, behind what you're saying about it. Well, to explain what I was saying about Dan Warris forever, since I do consider Dan Warris a friend, and he, he actually does speak from this passage. But the idea behind this it says, yeah, this is a favorite story of mine about Jesus. And it is in the Bible, and it's for a reason, but it's not part of the original text of John. Yeah, that's the way, that's the same way I take the text. I think it's an authentic event of Jesus. I don't think it's where John has it. And when I wrote a book called Jesus According to Scripture, when I came to this section, I put it in brackets, much like you, my entire discussion of the passage, much like you would see in a Bible, and explained why the brackets were there. In fact, the, the point that we can see where there are these passages that we're quite sure don't really belong in the text, it actually leads to the opposite conclusion. We can tell these passages are addition. It's not because the text is so unreliable, but because we can be so sure of what the original text said, but we can look at these and say, hey, that doesn't belong. That's right, or at least it doesn't belong here. Mm -hmm. Now, this could all be wearing good to defending Christianity, of course, but at this point we could say, with Ehrman, well, yeah, let's talk about Christianity, but which Christianity? Weren't there several, several Christianities going around in 
Well, geez, one of them just happened to win out, and that's the one we have today. And hey, history is written by the winners anyway, you know? Yeah, and sometimes the winners deserve to win. <laughs> and, and what we've got in this particular situation is a case of it all depends on when you're asking the question. If you're asking the question, what did Christianity look like in the second century, and what people were claiming the names Christians in the second century, then you're going to have your Marcionites. You're going to have. Uh, your Ebionites, you're going to have your Gnostic Christians, you're going to have your uh, Monarchians, you're going to see a variety of expressions of Christianity in the second century. But if you go back to the first century and you ask what's sitting there, it's too early for Marcion. The Marcionites don't exist yet. Uh, the Docetists and the Gnostics uh, don't seemingly exist yet. You might have a Jewish Ebionite group, but they're not very prevalent. They certainly don't reflect the core of the church. And so you see this huge variety that is in the second century disappear in the first century. And what is happening with the alternative Christianity's model is it's applying a Christianity to a later time, to an earlier period, and the period that we're concerned about historically is the earliest period. Now, Ehrman depends a lot on Walter Bauer's hypothesis. Could you tell us some about Walter Bauer, who he is, who he was, when he lived, and what his claim was? Walter Bauer was a German scholar who wrote in the 1930s. He wrote a book in 1934 entitled uh, Heresy and Orthodoxy, the Earliest Christianity. And he argued that we ought to divide the regions of Christianity into six basic groupings. And he argued that in many of these places, view of other Christianities, of non-Orthodox Christianities, was the majority view versus Orthodoxy. And so he suggested that in the beginning there were many Christianities as opposed to an Orthodox Christianity, and that's where the view of alternative Christianities came, has come from. Of these six areas, maybe one gives us evidence. Uh, two or three of the others that he suggests are there or are close are actually uh, actually reflect later evidence. And in the midst of this later evidence, uh, uh, Bauer makes his case. He can't go back to the first century for a lot of these things. In fact, Marcionism can't go back to the first century because Marcion, its founder, lived in the second century. So this view has been undercut, even though it was very, very popular for a long time. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the suggestion is uh, that that this variety of Christianities exist in the beginning and then Orthodoxy emerged, when in fact, what is more likely to have happened is you had Orthodox Christianity. You did have some splintering begin in the first century because you do have epistles that indicate that there's some controversy in some of the churches with some syncretistic tendencies, particularly related to Judaism, in the earliest period of the early church. But the kinds of evidence that Bauer is bringing is later evidence that he's projecting back anachronistically into the first century. Earlier this year, I interviewed Dr. Charles Hill, and he wrote this book, Who Chose the Gospels? And one point he brought out is that one of the most heterodox areas in the world after Christianity started was Egypt. And yet when we go to Egypt and we look at the manuscripts that we find there, the Orthodox Gospels are by and large the huge majority of what's there as opposed to the heterodox Gospels. 
Yeah, although I think I would be careful about that kind of an argument because I think the argument can be made realistically that you preserve what you care about mm -hmm. and, and you might suppress and destroy what you don't. And so I just think we have to be careful about the way in which we make that argument, given the fact that there did come a time when these views were contentious and they did uh, conflict with each other and there were efforts to suppress the scriptures of the other group. Well, that brings us to the next claim, though, that writings from equally early and legitimate heretical forms of Christianity do not currently exist because they were destroyed by the proto-Orthodox in the first century. Trouble is, we don't have any evidence of the, of the proto-Orthodox forms that we see <laughs> later on in the, in the first century. Most people think the origin of Christian Gnosticism is a second century phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And and so we don't. So how can I how can I prove the existence of something for which I do not have evidence? Right. I can try and explain why I might not have evidence, but the fact is I still don't have evidence that it exists. Mm -hmm. And so and so how can I build a hypothesis off that? If I can build a hypothesis on that basis, I can posit all kinds of things. Yeah, part of the problem it sounds like to me is that this kind of gets us into conspiracy theory thinking where it can't be falsified. Wherever you say, you can find the evidence that fits it right into the conspiracy. Yeah, that's true. And I, and I, and the, I also think that if you look at the conversations that we do see in the first century sources that we do have, we don't see the kinds of developed Gnostic cosmology, for example, that's so prevalent in our second century works, the types of things we found at Nagamati, the types of things that Irenaeus is talking about, we don't see that reflected in the first century materials that we have uh, from the New Testament. And in fact, most material that we have that is Gnostic in nature, it's dated to the second century and beyond anyway, isn't it? That's right. And so my point here is, you know, when you're trying to figure out what the early church is arguing against in the New Testament epistles, and you're kind of listening to half a conversation, and you're trying to reconstruct what's on the other end, what is it exactly they're fighting against? So we're talking about things like what was the Colossian heresy, or what was going on in Corinth, you know, those kinds of things. We don't end up in the kinds of categories that we see in the later Christian Gnostic texts of the second century. We've got other kinds of things going on. So that's what I mean by there being a mismatch. Another reason we might not have a lot of texts from these kinds of groups is because not every group wrote their teachings down, especially if a lot of these were secret cult movements. They wouldn't want to write their teachings down because they didn't want people to find them out on their own. It was worth the initiating. We don't have any manuscripts of, say, Mithra's scriptures, for instance. Well, that may be, although I tend to think that the reason why we don't have evidence of these manuscripts is because they didn't exist. Mm -hmm. The groups didn't exist, and so the manuscripts didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Now, also, when we look at this further, the early church at the time, they didn't re even really have much power. They could have gone around destroying manuscripts, did they? No, you're right. In the earliest period, they absolutely couldn't uh, have this this opportunity because they didn't possess any power. They were a cultural minority. There wasn't anything that they had the power to suppress. It's quite interesting when we look at it in comparison with the last chapter because if there is one movement that we're quite sure they have their manuscripts destroyed by the outsiders, that was in fact the Christian movement. 
Well, that's right. Persecution is that certainly made an effort to destroy those scriptures. Now, Ehrman also has a third claim of early Christianity was widely diverse with no group having a legitimate claim to a true form of Christianity. That's pluralism projected back on the first century, and it, I think, is patently false. Mm -hmm. um, the, the Christian movement and the presence of the Twelve, the existence of the apostolic circle, the fact that you have these texts, not just of the New Testament. I wrote a book called The Missing Gospels, in which I traced the Orthodox writings running up to Irenaeus, because the claim of some people is that Irenaeus is the father of Orthodoxy, and we really didn't get to Orthodoxy until we got to Irenaeus. Mm -hmm. And so I went through the writings up to Irenaeus and made the argument that if you read those writings, the core theology is present across all those writings. So if there's no such thing as Orthodoxy and there's no organized way of doing theology in this period, where did all this agreement come from? So I'm talking about the Apostolic Fathers and, and the early apologists, that kind of thing. And so I just think that claim is completely false. And even Bart Ehrman himself will say that when you study the New Testament, you study the historical Jesus, if you want to have the best resources in the life of Jesus, you have to go to the four Gospels. And he says it's not for religious reasons, it's for historical reasons. That's right. Exactly right. Now, we also have the claim that the Orthodox ones were the ones who determine what was in the canon, because history was written by the winners, and so now they can go and take those books and say, oh, let's see, these books are the ones that deserve to be in there. So it's pretty much the church is being accused of historical revisionism. Okay, well, let's think about this. By the time we get to Irenaeus, the end of the second century, the church is still a cultural minority. It doesn't have any real uh, political, social power. We're 125 to 150 years before Constantine. Irenaeus is naming the four Gospels, Acts, the Pauline Epistles, 1 Peter and 1 John as New Testament canon. Now, granted, that is not all our New Testament canonical books, but that certainly is the core, a core representation of the canon, a substantial portion of it. And what Irenaeus is saying is, we have four Gospels, we have Acts, we have the Pauline Epistles, we have 1 Peter, we have 1 John. This is what we read in the churches. This is what we treat as Scripture. And so uh, this all predates any of the councils, any Constantine move, etc. And I mm -hmm. think that that fact alone undercuts the claim that, that the later process was a choosing process. The later process was a recognition process. They recognized what it was the churches were using. Sometimes when people come to me and they ask me about the canon and say, okay, why do you think these other gospels weren't included in the canon? And I'll just tell them, okay, you want to know why they weren't included? Go home and read these gospels, then come back and talk to me, and you'll find out why they weren't included. I think you're exactly right. I mean, I, I do this with the Gospel of Thomas all the time. Mm -hmm. I basically tell people, just sit down and read it and decide whether or not it belongs in. The Gospel of Thomas is an easy one because when you come to saying 114, where Jesus is defending Mary's right to be in heaven, the way he does it is by making the point that he's going to make her a male so she can come into heaven. That's probably not a canonical text. Yeah, my, my wife's sitting right here next to me, and she just started snickering a little bit at that one. And it, it surprises me that some scholars like Elaine Pagars, who I think 
should be very interested in how Jesus treats women in these Gospels, where one us to say, hey, let's look at these Gnostic Gospels more. Yeah, and she'll try and spiritualize that text so that you can still keep it in the loop by saying, well, what's really going on here is a kind of recognition that there's no male or female in Christ, but that ignores the fact that, that the female is being eliminated in the process. Mm -hmm. Now, at this point, I do want to remind everyone that what we do here is listener-supported entirely. And uh, at this point, I don't know who the new host of the show is going to be. I can tell listeners that what I do here is indeed supported by you are. That I, I can't do it without your donations, without your support. And if you've missed the Deeper Waters podcast some, well, consider that why this is so important. Uh, if you want to support the Deeper Waters podcast, you can go to my blog at deeperwaters.wordpress.com. There's a donate button. That will take you to the ministry of Mike Lacona, Risen Jesus. And you can make a donation there. Now, once you do that, it's extremely important that you contact me or you contact Mike and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And when you do that, they will make sure that I get that donation and your donation will be tax deductible. As well. Now, also, I do have some ebooks that are available. The next one to come out, I believe, would be one on God and Natural Disasters, a dialogue I had with an atheist, very relevant to the form of evil that we talked about. And then, of course, there are several books that I sh show on the podcast, and yes, I plan on updating it soon, that are available on, in our Amazon e store. If you make a purchase there, we get a little bit of a proceeds. But people, I really ask that you please support the Deeper Waters podcast. If you're benefiting from the food of this ministry, take part in some of the harvest. Now, Dr. Bach, do you have any organization or charity or anything like that you'd like people to support as well? No, I don't. You're, you're in good shape. I mean, I would love for them to know about uh, the table podcast that we do out of the seminary, which is www.dts.edu slash the table. They deal with a wide variety of topics tied to God and culture, and some of them are apologetics, but a lot of them have to do with uh, with church uh, polity issues, church ministry problems, where the church encounters the culture and how to think about that in terms of strategy. So that's probably the one thing I would want to mention. That's what I do as Director of Cultural Engagement out of the Hendricks Center at the seminary. Now, some listeners might wonder, okay, is that podcast available on iTunes? It's available on iTunes. It's available on YouTube. You can hit a subscribe button, which means you automatically get it. It comes in video or audio-only formats, so there are a lot of different ways to, to uh, get it. And I do encourage people to do this kind of thing. I listen to podcasts quite frequently still today. If I sit down and take a break with a game of some sort, I'll usually have a podcast going at the same time. But for now, let's get back to this podcast and talking about this book. Now, one point here is also the history is written by winners. And I'd like to point out that Mike Lacona in his book, The Resurrection of Jesus in the New Historiographical Approach, points to Thucydides and Xenophon, both of whom were on the losing side, and both of whom wrote history. Yes, it, sometimes... The losers do get through. The Nag Hammadi texts show the same thing. Mm -hmm. But my point is, there's, a, there's, a, there's an even more profound point to make in this particular dispute. Mm -hmm. And that is that when they dug up the Nag Hammadi texts in the 1940s, and they began reading them, 
they recognized the story of creation that was coming from these Christian Gnostic texts, and they, and they were thinking to themselves, this story sounds very familiar. We've heard it before. And what they did is when they looked back and considered what Irenaeus had to say about what it was that the heretics were teaching in terms of the creation story and that kind of thing, um, the story that was being told was the story that Irenaeus told. And, and it was in the document which recognized as the most popular of the Gnostic creation stories, mm -hmm. the Apocryphon of John. Mm -hmm. And what that shows us then is that these missing, secret, hidden Gospels that are telling us new stuff really weren't telling us anything new at all. We knew about it all the way back to Irenaeus. And in fact, it was told well enough that when we could check the story, we could recognize that's the story that Irenaeus is telling us. And that's something else that's interestingly ironic about this is that Roman reclaim repeatedly really depends on which gospel you read because these gospels contradict so much and they have all these lost Christianities and then orthodoxy told what was going to be in the canon and they brought all these lost Christianities together. Yeah, which is uh, ludicrous. I mm -hmm. mean, uh, the idea that that Paul and, and uh, would be a, a complete different rival than James and then the later church would bring them together to make them into one. That if there really were as much rivals as is being portrayed, you wouldn't have brought those texts together. Now, we can certainly say there are things that on the surface might look like discrepancies. I mean, I can understand some people being of the opinion that says, well, it looks like James has a salvation by works and Paul has a salvation by faith. I mean, I don't think that's the case. I think they both teach salvation by faith. But to say that those are Thus, automatically two different versions of Christianity, and then they were suddenly brought into the canon together by a church that's willing to unify everyone is really quite odd. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I just don't think you're going to pull... It's a little bit like saying, can you imagine someone uh, 50 years from now pulling the Tea Party politics together with Democrats? Unlikely. Mm -hmm. And now, another thing is made is that we have creeds today like the Nicene Creed, and says these were creeds that were invented later on. They don't really share a connection with the early church. Now, to be sure, of course, the creeds did come later, and of course, no one's saying that after, after the resurrection, all of a sudden, here comes an official document on the Trinity immediately. But what is the relationship between the creeds and the various teachings that we have? Is there a total disconnect there, or are there innovators along the way, or what? No, the creeds were designed to be statements to answer core theological and philosophical questions of the time in which they were created, dealing with certain disputes that existed in the 4th century when they were created. And that's why their language is distinct from Scripture. But they're drawing on teaching and reflection that is part of the tradition of the early church, and you can trace that tradition. But let me flip the question around, because there's really an important thing that's wrapped up in this. You know, sometimes the alternative Christianity view says there were a variety of theologies out there, and part of the reason there was a variety of theology is there was no way to communicate, good way to communicate core orthodox theology in the period before we have the beginning of the emergence of a recognized canon. Mm -hmm. Theology can go anywhere in that environment without the imposition of a canon. But I think that ignores something that you can see in the first century documents that we have. Now notice, I didn't call them biblical documents, even though they're in the Bible, but they're first century documents. And that is, if you trace the core theology that those works are presenting, 
they're consistent. There is it's a certain core story. You can actually trace that core through the second century. And you can also watch it being reinforced in little mechanisms that teach that theology before we get a functioning New Testament canon. They're seen in doctrinal summaries that we see. They're seen in the use of the Old Testament scripture that we see. They're seen in the singing and the, in the theological content of the hymns that we see. And they're seen in the sacraments. They're seen in the theology that's taught in baptism and the Lord's Supper. You put all those together, you will see the core theology of the church. And every one of those categories are categories that are available to anyone who walked into the church in the first century. They were part of the worship environment of the church in the first century. And so that's what's going on um, that allows the theology to be taught before you can get up and say, well, let's cite Matthew next to Luke, next to John, next to Romans. Now, when you talk about these doctrinal statements, I suppose you mean creeds such as ones we find in, say, 1 Corinthians 15 or Romans 10. Let me go through the, let me go through the list. 1 Corinthians 15, dealing with the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26, dealing with the wording of the, at the Last Supper. Um, 1 Corinthians 8, more of the, the Benetarian statement we mentioned earlier, where God and Christ are wrapped into the Shema, and both are presented as creators, meaning that Jesus is not a creature. Romans 1, 3 and 4, the statement of Jesus' person, descended from David on the one end, shown to being Son of God with, uh, in power uh, uh, through the resurrection on the other. Uh, a host of statements from the pastoral epistles that do this. The hymns, uh, Philippians 2, 6 to 11, that deals with the career of Jesus. Or Colossians 1, 15 and following, dealing with Jesus, the firstborn of creation and the firstborn from the dead. And what's interesting is every one of these that I'm mentioning takes on a different aspect of core Christian theology. Mm -hmm. Romans 6, 2-4, dealing with the significance of baptism, dead to sin, alive to God. The sacraments themselves. Baptism, I just said it with Romans 6. The Lord's Supper, dealing with the nature of Jesus' substitutionary work and the significance of his death. So, so that's the list, and if you just took that list by itself, but nothing else around it. Uh, one, each one of those pieces is memorable because they're just a few lines. And secondly, and most importantly, is you would cover most of the core theology of the early church. Well, what's also interesting about this is, aside from, say, the Colossians reference and the pastoral epistles, is that all of these are also from undisputed Pauline correct. letters. Exactly correct. But, and which means that the traditions that you're dealing with here are very early. But, of course, this raises up another question, since we've said that some of these letters are undisputed. Well, some of them are disputed, and this brings up another charge of Ehrman, that there are forgeries in the New Testament. Yeah, uh, which, uh, and he's using the, the model that does exist in Judaism of certain works being written in the names of certain other people mm -hmm. and being presented as being from those people. That kind of writing does exist. What's interesting is is that that kind of writing is not widely evidenced in epistolary literature, which is where it tends to be most applied in the New Testament. The other place where it gets applied is the Gospels, but we'll talk about that in a second. And, uh, and you don't generally see it in epistolary literature on the outside. Um, the, the case of the Gospels is a more complex case because the Gospels themselves are anonymous. We put together their sense of tradition and authorship by, by reading uh, the tradition that's associated with them. But here's the question that I like to raise. 
and when we raise this question, we raise it in abstraction without thinking at all about the possibility that when these Gospels were sent to churches and began to be read in churches, I find it highly unlikely they would have been read in the churches originally without some knowledge of where they came from. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's like um, a letter shows up in your UPS, uh, by UPS delivery in your mailbox, and it's a text about Jesus, but it doesn't tell you where it comes from, even though it, the name of the author isn't mentioned in the work itself. Yeah. You wouldn't turn around and make that a holy book. Uh, you wouldn't turn around and use that in the churches unless there, there was some sense that where this came from uh, had roots that made it worthy to consider in that kind of a light. And I think we've just completely forgotten about the reception process that would have likely been going on in that early period that would have made a text commendable and would have made a church aware of where the materials came from, so that when we get a tradition pretty consistent that uh, that Mark is writing off of what it was that Peter taught him, or even more interesting consistency, that of all the uh, companions of Paul, the only one who's the candidate for the third gospel is Luke. Um, I think the consistency of that testimony tells us a lot. I think it's even more painful for the UPS example, though, because the UPS I mean, the person, the the scroll or whatever it is, would come with a person who had no clue necessarily who wrote just somebody he picked up at work. But in the ancient world, a messenger would deliver the Precisely scroll. The point. Yeah, I mean, say, like, like, uh, who who told you about this? That's huh? right. I don't know. I just found it while I was out walking around one day. Now, when we get to the epistles, however, there are six epistles that claim to be Pauline, and Ehrman is of the stance that these aren't Pauline. Now, what's interesting about this is E. Randolph Richards wrote one of the greatest statements on the use of secretaries in the ancient world, and Ehrman hardly interacts with this at all. Yeah, in fact, when he does, he misrepresents it. Mm -hmm. and, and so... Uh, and I got into a private email skirmish with uh, with Airman about something I said on the air about this and using it in something I posted on one of my blogs. And I wrote him and said, uh, your gripe is not with me. Your gripe is with Randy Richards who wrote this material. He's the one who's saying this. All I'm doing is passing on what he says. And Richards wrote me an email thanking me for making clear the distinction between his own position and what Airman said he wrote. Mm-hmm. In fact, when we look at some of these letters that are indisputably Pauline, one of them does have to be Romans, and lo and behold, Romans itself says it was written by a secretary. That's exactly right. So how that plays into the mix is part of what gets us into the style questions that sometimes come up about these different works and that kind of thing. It explains the phenomenon that we have. You know, Dan Wallace, even in a review of Forge, talked about how Ehrman points to these computer tests that were done. And he says, yeah, what Ehrman doesn't tell you is that these same computer tests also say that Revelation 4 and 5 were written by the Apostle Paul as well. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm not going to uh, argue that a computer should be put in charge of New Testament studies classes. Now, when we do, it was fervor. We also think problems, we don't know much about where well, we do know a lot, but we have a lot of misunderstandings about how letter writing was done in the ancient world. It wasn't the case that 
Paul would sit down at a desk alone and write a letter. Writing a letter would be a group activity. As it were, there would be several people who would be going in and out, and they would be making suggestions about what could be said. Yeah, I like to use some modern analogies for this because people are understand this once you put it this way. You know, a lot of stuff that comes out under the name of, say, a president of a company or something like that is usually written at the base by a PR person or someone in his own office, and then he looks it over, puts his touches on it. It's based upon something that he mm -hmm. has said. I do this in my own office all the time at the center where I ask someone to write something. I've given them the gist of the direction it should go. I look it over once they're done. We put it out. Sometimes it goes out under my name. Sometimes it goes out, out under the name of both the people who have worked on it. Uh, that depends on how much content each of us is responsible for. And then, uh, and, and it wor it's worked through the process that way. Mm -hmm. uh, we do this all the time today without blinking an eye. And I think you've got a similar kind of ancient version of that process going on with many of these epistles. We can also point to the idea that he considers some of the epistles to be spurious because they contain words that Paul doesn't normally use or writing styles he doesn't normally use. And a lot of this could be explained by the secretary hypothesis, and it could just be explained by different situations. I mean, if you read a blog of mine, you'll find out my writing style and terms I like to use, I'm sure, eventually. But on the other hand, if I wrote my wife a private love letter in an email or something, I'm sure the writing style and the words I use would be very, very different. It'd certainly be different than the words you'd write if you were writing me a letter, and I'm glad. Yes, I'm glad too. <laughs> now, when we look at the Gospels also, get back to those a little bit, one of the problems Ehrman has with the Gospels is he says they weren't written by eyewitnesses and they weren't written by companions of Jesus. And I really don't think there was much interaction with Richard Barkham's Jesus and the eyewitnesses when I read this in Forge. could be, I just don't remember it. No, I don't think there's much interaction with that at all. There's no real good handling of the early tradition that's involved here, the issues that are involved. I like to say it this way. You know, the alternative theory with regard to how these names are attached to Gospels is you put uh, the gospel in the name of a luminary or someone with a close condition, a close position in relationship mm -hmm. to the apostles to elevate its status because otherwise it's anonymous and it doesn't have status. Right. So you have a choice out there between naming the second gospel, the gospel of Mark, or the gospel of Peter. Uh, and there's good reason to go be able to go either way from what the tradition tells you. If you had that choice and you could give it, you, you had you had that choice and you could give it either choice, wouldn't you have named the second gospel the gospel of Peter? Absolutely. The second gospel was named the gospel of Mark. Mm -hmm. I think that shows the care with which the tradition has handled its own tradition in presenting authorship. Mm -hmm. Your fellow associate down there, Daniel Wallace, said the same thing in his book that he co-wrote, Reinventing Jesus, saying, the church could have easily just said Peter and cut out the middleman. They said the middleman repeatedly. And in fact, the middleman would have been, in this case, someone very embarrassing to the early church because he was known as a mama's boy that split apart two of the first major deliverers of the gospel. Yeah, I, I, when I talk about this in public, I go through this little uh, spiel where I go, well, let's look at Mark's resume. It isn't exactly outstanding. You know, went home to Mama after 
after the first missionary journey, produced a split between Barnabas and Paul. That isn't exactly commendable, you know, lift up your status kind of a CV. And so uh, it's an indication of the conservative nature of the tradition that even though this person has this kind of embarrassing element in his background, he's associated with the authorship and he's connected to Peter. But even despite the connection to Peter, the authorship's attributed to him because he's responsible for the work. It's also important to point out one thing that he says is that Peter and some of the others would have been illiterate fishermen who just wouldn't be capable of getting this story out there. Yeah, I think this completely ignores the fact that we may not be talking about where Peter starts. The question is where Peter finishes by the time he's writing. Mm -hmm. And someone who could lead, help lead a movement cross-culturally, mm -hmm. across a whole continent, expansion. He's one of the key figures in this group. Uh, certainly probably has some bilingual capability in the amount of time he spends outside of, uh, of Israel after mm -hmm. the church is born. In fact, one point that's brought out is that there's not much reason to think fishermen would have been illiterate. They would have at least had enough functional literacy to handle the business of fishing, which would include writing documents a little bit and dealing with taxes and things of that sort. Yeah, I think that's correct as well. Uh, but I do think that thinking through what it is that Peter actually accomplished, say, when mm -hmm. he went to Rome and the nature of that church, etc., tells you that, that, that we aren't dealing with an illiterate fisherman. In fact, Craig Evans in his book, Jesus and His World, also points out that if there was an area where literacy would have been strong in the ancient world, it would have been in the area of Israel. Yes, and it would have been in association with commerce. Although, you know, the, the debate is how literate was this culture. And estimates have tended to move down the scale versus up the scale. Another problem that we have is defining what we mean by literacy. Do we mean full, you know, high-level, elite-level literacy? Mm -hmm. Or do we simply mean able to function in a language or in multiple languages, able to do some basic reading. I think that makes a difference. But the estimates that we get are somewhere between 5% for the culture at large. Sometimes with Israel, you get up to the 10 to 12% region, something like that. Most of the writing that we see, though, has a lower number versus a higher number. But, but they also will say that this kind of moderate literacy, if I can say it, is more widespread than that number, uh, simply because of the kind of practice that is involved in just doing business. Well, many of my listeners might be meeting the internet atheist crowd and people in water cooler conversations and such who argue against Christianity, and they'll often be told repeatedly that the Gospels are written by anonymous, non-eyewitness people. What would you say to a claim like that? Well, I would say that the, the I don't think they'd even have begun to circulate in the churches without some knowledge of where they came from. That would be the first thing I would say. Mm -hmm. Second thing that I would say is, is, that, uh, is that part of the issue here has to do with the way in which oral tradition worked in the early church. And there's a lot of work going on right now in orality and with issues of memory that show that things can be passed on, they can be preserved, there can be oversight on them in a way that keeps them uh, fairly, uh, that keeps the tradition uh, very much controlled mm -hmm. in terms of, of where it goes and what's, what's done with it. When these, I, studies, these studies involve people who 
work even in Bedouin societies today, looking at Bedouin societies today and how they preserve their material. This is a largely, mostly illiterate crowd that works strictly in the confines of morality and yet can preserve stories across uh, hundreds of years with a great deal of, uh, of accuracy. I think one of the most important works you can read in this regard, and it's one that I mentioned last night, and said every student of Scripture should read this one, and that's Barton and Sandy's book, The Lost World of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is dealing uh, especially and including areas of Old Testament that are important. Uh, and, and so because the, the tension in these areas in some ways is greater with some issues related to the Old Testament than it is in, in relationship to uh, New Testament. I'd like to touch a little bit also that in his latest book, Ehrman actually argues that Jesus wasn't buried, and you spend some time talking about this in the book. Yeah, again, uh, I think the problem here is yet another clear case of, uh, I'll say, literary nearsightedness that doesn't pay any attention to the historical background. If what happened to Jesus had simply been that he had been buried along with criminals and his body left to rot on a cross and disposed in a pit somewhere with the other criminals, that would have been the response to the claims of resurrection in Judea immediately after he died. Mm -hmm. uh, and nothing like that comes up in any of the polemical responses we see from Judaism. The response that we get is the body was stolen. Mm -hmm. And so... This assumes a burial, and it assumes a burial in which uh, the place where Jesus was buried was known, and they never found the body. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting that Evans, when he responded to this and how God became Jesus, he cited Jody Magnus, a Jewish archaeologist, and she said, Gospel accounts of Jesus' burial are largely consistent with the archaeological evidence. Although archaeology does not prove there was a follower of Jesus named Joseph of Arimathea, or that Pontius Pilate granted his request for Jesus' body, the gospel account describing Jesus' removal from the cross and burial are consistent with archaeological evidence and with Jewish law. Now, what I found most fascinating about this though was not what Joe the Magnus said herself, although that isn't incredibly important, but rather that Jody Magnus is a Jewish archaeologist at UNC Chapel Hill which I believe happens to be exactly where Bart Ehrman teaches. That's correct. And what's really interesting is, is that the law that's being involved here, which is recorded in the Mishnah, is the idea that if you die as a felon, you cannot be buried in a family tomb. <laughs> well, Jesus isn't buried in a family tomb. He's buried in the tomb of Joseph Arimathea, who's not related to him. So that would have been permitted. Mm-hmm. And then also there was the article was by Byron McCain, and I believe he's right in this, where he says, Jesus' burial was really a shameful burial. He wasn't buried in the tomb of his ancestors, and there was a stone point run largely probably to prevent people from coming and mourning Jesus. So the burial of Jesus is not something the early church would really want to emphasize. No, that's correct. The whole point of not being granted a burial in your family tomb is to underline the dishonor of having been executed as a felon. And Ehrman also points to that in the Creed, in 1 Corinthians 15, when it says, buried, it doesn't say, buried on, by, by Joseph of Arimathea, and I was going to say, yeah, and it says that he was died, it 
But he died doesn't say he was crucified by Pontius Pilate, so so what? Exactly. Now, what is your recommendation, then, to students who are encountering Bart Ehrman or someone like Bart Ehrman in the classroom? Well, I think in the context of the classroom, just be aware that probably what you're getting is half the story and not the full story. You know, I once taught a single class at the University of Michigan in one of these early Christianity classes. I happened to know the professor, and we have gotten along well, so he, I happened to be visiting uh, Michigan and teaching his graduate students in a doctoral seminar meeting afterwards. He said, why don't you take one of my classes? Uh, I happen to be at Luke. Uh, and, and handle it for me uh, while you're here, which I was glad to do. And so what I did is I went into the class and I said, here's what you read in Bart Ehrman and Luke. Now I'm going to tell you the things about Luke that Ehrman, that Ehrman's chapter doesn't tell you, but also raise some questions about some of the stuff that he is telling you. And I spent the hour working through some of those things in that class. Uh, so the key thing is, I don't think you take the professor on in class. I just think right. that's a losing proposition. Mm -hmm. I think what you do is you you do your you're going to have to do your own work in finding these other sources. I think you can talk to some students about what's there. You might ask a question now and again in class that shows that there's another point of view. That kind of thing. Uh, those are the types of things that I'd recommend a student doing who's caught in this situation. And a student could also do things such as find, say, a local Ratio Christi chapter, and that chapter could hopefully help them get the information that they need to address the challenges that they get in the classroom. I think that's true, and uh, Ratio Christi is an organization I'm working very closely with. In fact, we're in the process of talking our, uh, about holding a national conference that's kind of does some staff training for them in a couple of summers. That sounds excellent. And then what should the message be to parents now who are getting ready to send their students off to college or planning about sending their children off to college in the future? And a lot of them might not know that there is a Bart Ehrman or someone like him waiting for their children at college. Well, I would say the best thing to do here is to get your hands on some of these resources that we have provided, Truth Matters, Truth on the Culture of Doubt, Get familiar with those kinds of arguments. See if you can find someone in your church who is interested in apologetics and is aware of some of this discussion. Have some conversations with them uh, to help prepare them for what, for what lies ahead. Yeah, I like what you said about churches as well, because I've been of a stance that every church should have at least one person in the church who's a sort of go-to on apologetics. And I mean, I think every pastor should have some experience in studying apologetics, at least the bare minimum. But I also understand that not every pastor can devote himself for a time to really studying apologetics. So he needs someone under him who can do the task. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think particularly youth workers who work with this age group, high school kids and college kids, needs to have some element of this in their in their background and something and create some expertise uh, on the topic that they can draw upon. I've got a friend who's actually teaching an apologetics course at a church, and I gave him the quotes from Ehrman that I referred to earlier, and he said, well, that's kind of assuming that 
most of the church there would know who Ehrman is, probably only a couple of them would. And I said, well, you need to tell them who he is because if they don't know now, they will find out in the future. No, you're right. I think that being aware of what this represents is important. Mm -hmm. Do you think a lot of the problem that we talked about at the beginning is we have created this rift, and the more we try to isolate ourselves from the academy, it's not going to be doing us any good. But church really needs to be interacting and knowing what's going on in the world of biblical scholarship, and the pastors need to be the ones that are telling them what's going on. No, I think that's true. Uh, and and we could be doing a better job in some cases of providing resources for the churches, and that's what we're working on doing. Mm -hmm. I'm even thinking about this with what I had talked about earlier in the chapter of textual criticism. Our church has this unique idea where during the sermon that if you have a question, you can actually text it in to a number, and the pastor will come out at the end and hear address for question for you. And it can be sent in anonymously so that you don't have to fear being embarrassed by your question or anything. And sometimes the questions are so immense that you'll say, I'm going to make a video log of this later on. We're going to answer a question. And one of the questions he did answer recently was on the doxology in the Lord's Prayer where some versions say, Revive the kingdom and power and the glory forever. Amen. And he said, well, we just did a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer of a question or asked, so why didn't we cover that part? And he actually did go into some of the textual criticism and such, and lo and behold, I didn't see any grand apostasies taking place at our church. <laughs> no, I, don't, I think this will help people rather than harm them. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit, I mean, if someone wants to get the book, where exactly do they need to go in order to get their hands on this book? Well, I would say the easiest way to do it is to either do it through a Christian bookstore, which certainly should have it or get access to it or else very simply do it through amazon.com you have it probably have it within 48 hours mm -hmm. now we're coming up to the point where we just really need to be wrapping things up unfortunately because it, it's been a great interview but time is working against us here so dr mark after all that's been said about bart Ehrman and the position of a church today and how we need to be doing better where is there any final message you would like to leave for the audience? Well, the main thing is, is, is that these kinds of studies are important. They're important not only for your kids, they're important for you. Uh, they're important because even if your child doesn't take this class at the university, their friends will. Mm -hmm. These kinds of conversations take place on campus. So there's no way to hermetically seal your child away from these conversations mm -hmm. in dealing with these issues. If they share with their friends who don't come out of the church, their friends are going to raise these issues often from these kinds of perspectives. And you just need to have uh, people who are prepared to deal with them. And the flip side is if you don't say anything about it, you leave the impression that the church has hidden something mm -hmm. from the child. And that's a terrible place to leave your child going into this kind of an environment. And even if by some chance they never encounter these questions, I'd say from my perspective, I'm sure you'd say the same thing, that your faith and understanding of Jesus is greatly enriched by going through these kinds of questions. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, that's, that's one of the benefits of it. In fact, when I share this kind of stuff with people for whom this is new, that's almost the universal response. Mm -hmm. 
Now, if someone wants to find out more about you or get in touch with you, do you have a website or a blog or any way that they can do that? They can contact me through uh, through the seminary. Um, and the seminary has a faculty page that gives my contact information. It's dbach uh, uh, at dps.edu. And, uh, uh, and they can get a hold of me that way. And that seminary would, of course, be Dallas Theological Seminary. That's right. Well, I'd like to remind everyone that next week, James Sire is supposed to be my guest. It's going to be a very interesting interview talking with one of the the original greats in American apologetics of the last century. But now, Dr. Park, I'd like to thank you for all the time that you gave to us and to you and your co-authors for writing this book, a great response to Bart Ehrman. And yes, people, this one does come highly with my recommendation, but thank you for coming on and who knows, maybe, hopefully we'll see you again for a third time sometime. Well, Nick, it's a great pleasure to see this again, and I wish you all the best, and uh, thanks for giving me the time to talk about this. Thank you, and for now, I'm Nick Peters, signing off, and we'll see you again next week.